Good morning. I'm talking to Dr. Hofer and Dr. Sinatra, who are both uh, psychologists and professors of psychology. You can uh, read more about them uh, in the description. They wrote a wonderful book called uh, Science Denial. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Great. Awesome. Okay, so this is gonna be our first time talking with two guests at the same time. So um, I'm excited for that too. Uh, so my, my first question is, um, why are so many people skeptical of science? Why do so many people deny science? Um, and are there good reasons to be skeptical of science? Um, I, I think one of the things we try to talk about in the book is a range of responses to scientific knowledge. Uh, we titled the book Science Denial, but we talk about doubt, resistance, skepticism, all those sorts of things. And I think we try to distinguish among them as well. So science denial is a belief-based attitude, you know, a, a classic sort of thing of not looking at the evidence, just going with what you believe. Doubt is often manufactured. Corporations come in and want us to be doubtful about certain kinds of things like whether their human causes a climate change or whether tobacco causes cancer, that sort of thing. Um, and resistance might just be that, oh, you know, that pull of your tribal identity to say, I just don't want to do that. I, my people believe something else. But skepticism is something we value as scientists. And scientists uh, prize skepticism. It's pretty much at the heart of the process of being able to be skeptical about things. And we want to encourage a healthy skepticism towards scientific knowledge. You want to make sure that the knowledge has been vetted and replicated and that sort of thing, that it's not just a one-off kind of study that you're going by. So, but why do so many people fall into this is what we spent time in the book exploring, trying to give psychological explanations for what's at the root of all this. And we, we can talk more about these as this unfolds because there are a number of things we'd like to get into in that regard. Yeah, and it seems to me like there's probably, um, there's like a gray area between the healthy skepticism, which we want to cultivate and encourage, and the kind of unhealthy skepticism, which leads to skepticism of accepted belief. Um, and I think hopefully, you know, we can, we can think more about that, talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, there was a wonderful piece on the New York Times a few weeks ago about a 25-year-old in Tennessee who decided to get vaccinated after being what she described as highly skeptical. You know, was it safe? Would it cause infertility? And she said, what, what I finally realized was it was good to be skeptical, but it was really bad to be ignorant. And so mm -hmm. she very carefully spoke to her doctor, got more information, got her questions answered and got vaccinated. And I think that that's healthy skepticism. I mean, that leads you towards scientific answers that can guide your decisions. But skepticism as a just generalized response of like, ah, I just don't buy it. That's problematic. Yeah, to make like a personal example, in my family, I grew up with, with parents, grandparents who were skeptical of technology in all sorts of ways. So like my grandmother uh, was against uh, color TVs because she felt <laughs> like it was it was dangerous, you know, um, or, or there was a skepticism around cell phones, you know, causing brain microwaves. Cancer. Exactly. Microwaves. We I mean, no microwave wow. in my house growing up. Um, and, and when I asked about this, when I became like, you know, like, why are we skeptical? Uh, you know, one of the answers that I used to get a lot is, you know, well, like, like think of the cigarette companies. And the way that the scientists used to promote, you know, cigarettes and said cigarettes were safe, you know, so I, I feel like, again, this, this gray area emerges where it's sometimes hard to know where to draw that line. Well, it's extremely hard to know where to draw that line. And the scientists who were promoting uh, safety of cigarettes were scientists who were hired by and paid by those companies that were producing tobacco products. 
And so one of the important things in trying to figure out what science to trust is to look for the source of that information and even to consider who is paying for that scientific research because scientists are people too and they can be corrupt uh, just as anyone could be. They can be mistaken as anyone could be. So healthy skepticism about who the scientists are and what their motives are, who's paying them is, is appropriate. Uh, what we like to talk about is having trust in the scientific enterprise as a whole and consensus science, science that has been proven over and over again by hundreds if not thousands of studies and hundreds of scientists in different fields. That's what you can have greater trust in. Yeah. Before we go any further, I think it's it's important for me uh, to antagonize some of my uh, listeners and viewers. So I'm a progressive and I, I, I like to, th you know, criticize the right on my channel. I, I do that all the time. Um, and it's very, I, I get behind the idea of, you know, that the Republicans are anti-science or anti-climate change. Uh, what does science denial look like on the left? It's a really good question because it's, again, we try to make it clear in the book that it's not just an us and them kind of notion that those people out there don't believe science, but we do, or don't accept science, but we do. And I think looking at the ways in which we're all susceptible to certain kinds of thinking is really important. So we know, for example, that there are pretty dramatic correlations between political beliefs and whether someone's getting vaccinated right now. So Democrats are far more likely than Republicans to be vaccinated. Those with higher educations are far more likely to be vaccinated, et cetera. But on the left, there are also some beliefs that go the other way. So the early anti-vax movement, which was about childhood vaccinations, was pretty much white suburban women who were um, in their mother's groups that had breastfed and had home births and all of that, and who were trying to do only what was natural. So we write about that in the book as well. What does that population think? That's There's my also, family right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. There's also more <laughs> resistance to nuclear energy, the safety of nuclear waste, um, whether GMOs are healthy to eat. That all falls on the left. And I think one of the things our book does is help make it clear why that might be and how we all think this way. And I had a, a really great moment a few weeks ago when the New York Times did their Sunday Magazine cover story on should we learn to love GMOs? And a friend of mine who, you know, longtime Vermonter who was resistant to GMOs completely said, having read your book, I read this article with an open mind. I now realize I had biases at work and I needed to put those aside in order to read this article and understand the science behind things that were beneficial about GMOs, so. Yeah, and yeah. one, yeah, go ahead, sorry, sorry. I was gonna say my, my next door neighbor is a progressive Southern Californian. She um, is a vegetarian, uh, you know, no, she's a vegan and she eats organic. So she's not gonna get vaccinated, she told me because she's fit and she eats organic, so she's not gonna get COVID and it's, you know, that's really not how COVID works. We have seen <laughs> that the coronavirus does not care what your political affiliation is and often doesn't care about your level of fitness. It's true that uh, pre-existing conditions does have a, a less uh, positive outcome, but even healthy young people have um, suffered greatly or even succumbed to the disease. So eating organic is unfortunately not gonna save you from an infection. 
Well, what does the science say about organic anyway? Is there any health benefits in eating organic? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, but it's mixed. Yeah. It's mixed. Okay. Well, I mean, the thing that it, it's not the organic part, it's the, what is not in it. Right. So if you yeah. do not have pesticides yeah. in your food, that's, that's what you um, are getting the benefit from. Um, it doesn't really change anything other than you don't want expose, exposure to excessive um, chemicals and excessive pesticides in your food. So yes, organic is probably healthier for you. Okay. And they're a good list of like the top 10 vegetables and fruits that have the most pesticides in them. Those are the ones that they recommend you do buy organic. It's not, you know, it, a, a, a typical person doesn't have to buy everything organic all the time in order to get health benefits. But as Gail said, avoiding the pesticides is a well-known scientific issue. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I was, I was really impressed when you guys even called out gluten sensitivity at one point, I think towards the end of your book, because uh, I know plenty of people who are uh, gluten sensitive. Um, but it's an example of, you know, a kind of, kind of lifestyle choices that people make that, uh, you know, in some, in some cases might be warranted from a medical perspective, but often are just, uh, you know, not, not based in science at all. Yeah. Right. There are some people who are gluten sensitive, um, but there's a whole lot of people who probably are not who think they are. And, you know, why is that a problem? Well, some, you know, you want to be able to expose yourself to a varied diet. And there's health benefits to, to wheat. And um, obviously, you know, you don't want to restrict something that you don't need to restrict. So yes, there are people who are gluten intolerant, but there are way more people who think they are than they actually are. Yeah. And I think there's a tendency for people to feel like, you know, well, who cares? You know, and I think from my perspective, and I guess this is a question, if, if you guys agree from your perspective, is that it's important to be sort of fundamentalist about following the science and and that there's, it's a slippery slope that we sort of can either be in orbit of scientific consensus or we could fall out of that orbit and to be in orbit means to be in orbit about really everything you know and to really be is that something that you, would you agree with that sort of kind of fundamentalism that approach that i take well we would contrast that to what we call cafeteria denial you can't pick and choose the parts of science that you're going to follow but on the other hand, I wouldn't say fundamentalists because science can be wrong, has been wrong, and science changes all the time. So remember when we were washing our groceries at the beginning of the COVID uh, situation because we thought it was perhaps contracted through touch, and then we found that wasn't the case. So you don't want to be fundamentalists about it, but... You also can't be a cafeteria denier and just pick and choose what parts of science you want to follow. Uh, that's not how science works. I, I think the other thing I would say in response is that rather than say fundamentally, you must believe all science all the time, that sounds a little extreme to me. Instead, we encourage what Lee McIntyre, the philosopher, calls a scientific attitude, which is that you're valuing evidence and you have an open mind to new evidence. You're willing to change your mind in light of new evidence. And so I think that is a refreshing way to think about how do I stay open to what science is learning? How do I adapt with what science has learned? And that is a lot of what people needed during the past year. Unfortunately, what we've seen is a lot of people got locked into this notion that science is somehow always known with certainty and these scientists are changing their minds, they're flip-flopping. And instead it was the scientific process at work. It's just that too many people are somewhat scientifically illiterate about what the scientific process is and didn't understand 
that this is a perfectly predictable path for a novel coronavirus. Scientists were learning as we went. Right. Okay, great. Um, I've had one of my recent interviews was with a guy who wrote a book uh, called uh, when, when Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, and he's a philosopher. So he's addressing a similar kind of question, but from a different angle, from the perspective of philosophy. And so I, I asked him in that interview, um, what did I ask him? I asked him, how do we know that the earth is round? Um, and I was curious to hear his answer. And uh, I, I want to sort of pose that question to you. Um, we know the earth is round, but why do we know that? Well, it's interesting that you brought up a philosopher because Lee McIntyre, who's a philosopher, just wrote a book called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And in that book, he describes his experience going to the Flat Earth Convention. So um, it's a really interesting look at the folks who um, are in that group and why they're in that group. So how do we know that the Earth is round? Um, well, how do we know anything in science? It's based on evidence. So there's uh, all different kinds of evidence. And the reason that we don't really accept that as a young person, a child, is because it doesn't appear that way in our day-to-day -day experience, right? It sort of looks flat. You kind of think that the sun rises and sets and it looks is uh, if we're staying still and it's it, of course not how that works. So how do we know? We know this from all kinds of evidence. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, when William Shatner just went up on his brief uh, visit to, to pre-orbital space, one of the first things he said when he came down is, wow, the earth is round. <laughs> so people have seen it from space and from pre-orbital space. Uh, but it shouldn't have to take firsthand experience. Uh, we should be open to evidence from um, all kinds of astronomical pieces of evidence, seasonal change, how does that work? There's many different sources of evidence of this. Farrakhan. And there, there are wonderful sites online that just list, you know, the top 10 ways we know the earth is round for anybody who might still be doubtful. Right. You know, they look at the way shadows slant. They look at um, how the constellations change over time. They look at what the world looks like from an airplane. Most of people have been up in an airplane and maybe noticed that. We look at photos from outer space. I mean, they're just a, an enormous list of things that right, so that's the, enable yeah, people to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. But, but those are the answers I tend to get. And, and those make sense. And those are good answers. But my follow-up question becomes, well, what about like quantum mechanics, right? Because these are, there's other things that we believe that you can't go to a website that's going to find, you know, shadows that point to quantum mechanics being true, you know, but so we believe that is true as well. Well, look at black holes. Um, I have an astronomer friend who's explained to me black holes many times. And I have to tell you, I don't understand how black holes actually work. I don't understand the physics of that. So, you know, science operates on these edges where the edges of our understanding are a bit fuzzy. So I understand people's skepticism about black holes or quantum physics, and maybe we'll find out more information about those in the future. I think that's very different from the skepticism that people have about a spherical earth, where not only is there overwhelming evidence, you can have firsthand experiences, as we just mentioned. It's really hard to have firsthand experiences with quantum physics or black holes. Right, but I guess I guess from my perspective, what, what makes sense to me is based on something that comes up, I think at one point in your book, you, you, you reference a book, which I haven't read. I think the book is called We Never Think Alone or something along those lines. But yeah. it, it seems to me that the reason I believe 
in a rounder has nothing to do with firsthand knowledge has nothing to do with like experiments it has to do with because I trust the same people who tell yes. me that quantum mechanics exists, you know? Yes. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, to look for, um, you know, experimental kind of things when, when on yeah. a practical epistemological day to day, that's not really why we believe anything. That's such a good point. You know, I, I've done some research on epistemic trust. What does it mean to trust certain authorities? Why is there a decline in, in a valuing of expertise? Why is it important to trust science? Naomi Oreskes, who's a historian of science, writes about the reasons why we should trust science, you know, that it is this peer reviewed process. It's a collective enterprise. It's they, the ideas are vetted over time. These are critical self-correcting mechanisms in the process. And so there are many, many things we're not going to be able to know for ourselves. That's just not possible. So we do have a reliance on expertise. And we have written about what, what's been called a bounded understanding of science. You know, all of us, even scientists, only know within their own domain, pretty much. Uh, we all rely on expertise and on other scientists to give us a sense of the facts. We just want people to not just assume that all science is equal, that one little study that just came out that touts something that seems somewhat absurd is not the same as the IPCC report, which is summarizing 14,000 studies from and vetted by 235 scientists. Yeah, uh, I, I've actually um, have thought a lot about these questions and that's why I've reached out to you and I watched you to reach out to the author of the book, yeah. um, When Bething Happens to Good People. And I'm, I'm in touch with, with a few uh, flat earthers through this sort of interest of mine. You know, I, I, I'm yeah. a member of multiple flat earth Facebook groups and I've you know, spoken to them. Um, and, and my experience with them, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a conception that flat earthers are just stupid, you know, or, or they're, 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 they're just, but it's quite the opposite, uh, in my experience, at least. And, um, the, the biggest flaw I think in their thinking is this, is this deep, deep, deep skepticism, you know, a kind of skepticism yeah. you yeah. wish they would apply to their own sources It's a selective skepticism. I think ultimately that's the issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, yeah. but it's, you know, they're, they're able to, to analyze every video frame of, you know, NASA footage and show, you know, do, run it through all sorts of complex analysis and show yeah. how there's some CGI in their mind, you know, CGI technology or layering or something. Yeah. Um, a kind of analysis they would never do to anything that of course, you know, supports their theory. Um, <laughs> but that's like, the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, well, people want to be in the know. I mean, we all love a secret. Um, so we go to a party and someone's whispering over in the corner. The very first thing you want to do is find out, oh, what are they whispering about? So it's a very natural tendency to want to discover uh, something that's hidden from other people to feel like you have this insider knowledge. And we see people even, you know, politically, you know, saying that they have evidence of uh, political malfeasance when, of course, they probably don't. But it's often wanting to be part of uh, a, a, a particular group. For example, uh, I think some of the people in the Flat Earth Society have uh, found people who share their views and values. And yeah. so it's an identity uh, they are proud that they're not going to just believe what they're told. They're going to think for themselves. And so it's part of their identity and who they are that uh, attracts them to that group. And then they find like-minded individuals. And uh, that's part of what I think is going on there. And then they reinforce each other's beliefs at these conferences, through social media, et cetera. And there's often a sort of conspiracy ideation underneath all of this and a distrust of authority. So a lot of that seems to be drawn out of certain personality characteristics that draw people to 
these kind of fringe ideas. Uh, and I think, again, as Gail said, the social identity component is huge. It makes them seem part of something important and bigger and with other people who believe. And, and then also we talked earlier about this idea of relying on immediate sensory experience, this idea that the earth is flat, this intuitive theory. And you know, I, I look back to some of the early developmental theories that Piaget espoused about uh, children having a way of knowing the world that was very concrete and experiential. And eventually for many children, but not all, as they enter adulthood, that becomes a more abstract way of knowing the world. You do listen to experts, realize that inferences are made from observations. But I think some people never transcend that. They are stuck in the, I walk out every day and I see a flat earth. This is, <laughs> this is what it means to me. And as you pointed out though, a lot of the things that prove that the earth is actually round are things they ignore that really could be sensed directly. And I'm hoping Jeff Bezos takes one of the flat earthers with him on his next ride into space. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about emotions a little bit. So uh, one of my favorite, most, uh, my favorite artists is Sufjan Stevens, and he has an album called The Planetarium, which I have a very strong emotional connection with. And it has a song for every one of the planets, and uh, including Pluto. And so my question is, what could we do to protest the IAU's absolutely horrendous decision uh, to demote Pluto from the status of a planet? <laughs> well, I had a student do a dissertation on uh, fifth graders' response to Pluto being uh, demoted uh, to dwarf planetary status. And to her dissertation defense, I wore a t-shirt that said, Dear Earth, you suck love Pluto. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are certainly a lot of disappointed folks about that decision. Um, it's interesting because, you know, this is uh, a concept, right? What's a planet? And concept definitions can change over time. The reason for the um, Astronomical Society's views had to do with uh, not the size so much, but uh, the gravitational pull and whether Pluto could pull things into its orbit. And there were all sorts of reasons that they decided to change the planetary definition. And when they did, Pluto fell outside of that definition. And that's science. And they could change it again. So and one, of, one of the issues was size, though, because it, they had discovered 50 new planets that were about the same size as Pluto. So we were either going to have 59 planets or we were going to have eight and they decided that this these discoveries were going to keep going it didn't make sense to just string along this idea of how many planets the earth had but just to go with the major ones so size yeah. was an exclusionary factor right because the size of course relates to the gravitational pull yeah. of objects into its orbit but the point is that when you define you know the the earth the world the physical and natural world doesn't come categorized, we <laughs> categorize it. There really is no such thing as a planet. There's just different size objects in our orbit. <laughs> There's no such thing as a planet until we decide. So we're like the umpire deciding balls and strikes. It's just what we decide to call them is what they are. You know, they, they don't exist unto themselves predefined. Humans define and categorize their world to make sense of it. So we're making sense of it in a certain way now that's different from before. And that's very hard for people to understand and accept. Well, 
And, and also it has that emotional component that you describe. And so ironically, Gail and I were at a conference in Italy when we discovered we were both researching this issue about Pluto. The number, was it 15 years ago? When, when did all that happen? You know, it's been quite a while. So we were fascinated to compare responses we were getting. So my uh, research assistants were also interviewing grade school and middle school kids, asking them about how do you feel about Pluto being reclassified? And they were upset. I mean, viscerally, emotionally upset. Pluto, you know, as one of Gail's students said, Pluto's been a planet all my life. You know, how can they, how can they do that? Which is hilarious from, you know, 10 year old. But I, had but I think it does show that, you know, yeah. the emotions are um, about yeah. something that you know. And when you know something, you feel like it should stay factual forever, but that's not <laughs> how science works. Yeah. And, and there's also, I had so many students who were questioning, how can they do this? On what basis? I mean, this, as one said, you can't know unless you go. They would have to go to Pluto to recategorize it. You know, that concrete sensory experience thing again. But it and was- there, And there was an affection for it. Right, there was an affection for Pluto, maybe because Pluto was the smallest. I don't know exactly why the affection was strong for it, but there was an affection for it. Kids had their little acronyms for how to remember the planets. It was something they knew. And our, our fifth graders said, well, okay, once they understood the scientific redefinition, well, okay, but can you just sort of grandfather, <laughs> they didn't use those words, but can you grandfather Pluto in? You know, so if you find any new planets like that, then then you can call them dwarf planets, but just leave Pluto alone. You know, they didn't want to see it change. And I think it really represents what all of us as adults um, struggle with, which is the changing nature of science. And we get attached to certain yeah. ideas and we, we're, we're not always that comfortable with change. But are these emotions a hindrance to our uh, ability to uh, to do to be have correct views about the world? How, how should we think about emotions when it comes to uh, science in, the, in our universe? Well, emotions are um, how we think. We think and reason with emotions, and what we have to do is make sure that our emotions are working in service of that reasoning and not undermining it. For example, in climate change, we've seen in our research that if you accept climate change, you can have very strong negative emotions like anxiety and hopelessness. And then if you are a science, a skeptic regarding climate change, you can have strong negative emotions like anger. And it turns out none of those are particularly helpful in either understanding the science of climate change or in moving us towards working together for solutions. And so it is true that our emotions have to be working in service of thinking and reasoning for us to take positive actions and really strong negative emotions on either side can be a hindrance. Yeah, and, and you talk about that in the book, how science educators should be aware of the emotional valences of what they're teaching and the, the biases and preconceived notions of the students and sort of use that to, um, you, know, you know, correct the framing or, or, or adjust the framing of, of the information. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yes, if you're coming into a classroom where students have strong feelings about a topic, be it evolution, GMOs, climate change, or vaccination, 
you've got to recognize that that is part of their thinking and reasoning and not avoid the emotions, but sort of have students think it through. Like, why do you feel strongly about this? Let's talk about our feelings about this. And experiencing those feelings is part of learning and we can't put them aside. Teachers need to recognize them. And I think they're reluctant because obviously you don't want a bunch of upset students in your classroom, but the truth is they have these feelings and they're there whether you talk about them or not. So it's probably better to bring them out and share what those concerns are. And it's a delicate thing because we really don't want the classroom to devolve into an emotional mess. So we really want people to be able to express their emotions and think through them and put them in service of learning, not in hindrance of learning. Yeah, and so this, so far this conversation, at least this portion has been very, uh, a very stark contrast to my, uh, conversation with with the philosopher um you know you, obviously you guys are both you know working towards the same goal and you're both you know in service of the same of the same ideals um but but i think i think in many people's minds uh the goal is rationality and the enemy and anything that's not rational is 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 very suspect um what i'm hearing from you though is that uh there's there's a symbiosis there's a there's a an awareness of of all parts of, of the human being and it seems to me, at least, this is me, me talking. Um, may, maybe you would agree, maybe not. Um, it seems to me that rationality is, is 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 almost always downstream of emotion, um, and and the question is whether or not we're we're aware of that. Um, some well, of my cutting edge thinking in neuroscience now. Uh, some of this work done by my colleague here at USC, Mary Helen Imordino Yang, and others like her, is that it isn't separable. So it isn't uh, this happens first and then that happens. Uh, there's not a downstream upstream. In other words, what her research and many others have shown is emotions and cognition are intertwined in a way that can't really be fully separated. Yeah. yeah and, and back to your question. I mean, I think as psychologists, yes, we're considering the whole person. We're not just interested in cold cognition by any means. We're interested in how the the human being as a social entity, as a member of groups, as someone with both emotions and thoughts that are intertwined, as Gail says, we're interested in that whole picture of how a person responds to these. And a, a, an example I'll give you that I was thinking of a few minutes ago when you were talking is that I interviewed students about their beliefs about evolution, college freshmen years ago. And there was a student who came in just before Thanksgiving. And when I asked him about his what he thought about evolution and I had been seeing these students over the course of their first couple months of college he blushed and stammered and got really uncomfortable and he said I, I don't even want to go home for Thanksgiving right now and this is somebody who had come from a rural religious community to a large university where I was at that time and as a science major wanting to be a doctor so his intro bio class that fall semester had spent a lot of time on evolution. And he said, I understand that this is really important to grasp these ideas, to understand how the resistance to antibiotics, for example. And I have to, I have to accept that. But he said, and this was the poignant moment, he said, if I believe that, who will I be? And that was so striking to me that often professors don't realize they are dealing with this whole person, that this this kid was going to have to go home to, he said to my pastor, my parents, they, none of them believe in evolution. I was raised that it was the devil's work. You know, this is, this is just so hard for me to reconcile. And we forget that. We forget that this can be uncomfortable and painful 
to try to change that worldview, accept evidence, move towards science, and learn to not see it in conflict with religion, but to understand that religion answers other questions. Yeah. Uh, speaking now from anecdotal experiences and, and focusing on, on this rationality point, on the, on the way, you know, people think about rationality. I, I know some people, again, I, I have this hobby of, of talking to, to people with all sorts of exotic uh, beliefs uh, on the internet. Uh, I've had it for a while, but it, it picked up in, you know, I guess during the Trump era. Um, so I have, I have, you know, some people that I know, um, some like some of the, I would say some of the biggest like climate deniers that I know and, um, you know, vaccine skeptics, these guys like tend to really fetishize rationality. Um, and I just, it makes me wonder based on, again, my anecdotal experiences, if, if being, if being smart, this I think is so unintuitive to people. And I think a lot of people, maybe you even will, will reject this, but even being smart and being rational and fetishizing rationality as a hindrance to like getting correct knowledge. Is that, is that, does that sound plausible at all to you? Well, sure. If in fact you are more interested in proving how smart you are than in learning something new, Barbara and I are academics and we have met people in our lives <laughs> over the course of time who are either faculty or students who have been more interested in proving how smart they are. And in my experience, those people aren't the best learners aren't the best scholars, aren't the best researchers. The best scholars, thinkers, rationality, are people who are open to change and adopt that scientific attitude Barbara mentioned, willingness to change your thinking. So if your goal is to just prove how smart you are, uh, we know from motivation research, learning research, that's not the best approach to learning. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, you guys mentioned a little bit in, in the book, it comes up as well, this, the separation we can make between science and religion. Um, and, and I, I'm happy to accept that. I actually grew, grew up religious. I still have, uh, one foot squarely in a religious world. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, I think some people might push back against that. I think some people might say, you know, well, well, science does take a pretty strong stance on religion. Um, but for the purposes, for our purposes, you know, that I'm happy to endorse that view that there really is a strong separation. Um, but there isn't, in my opinion, and it seems to me there's not a strong separation between science and politics. And that people come to the table with political views, which can be as strong as religious views. And, and, and in those cases, I think political views really are uh, at risk. Would you agree with that? I, I think what's happened in the, this particular pandemic era is that things that should never have been politicized were. And if you look at nations that did not politicize, say the vaccine rollout or mask or whatever, Portugal's been touted as an example by the New York Times recently, they have done remarkably well at fending off the pandemic. Those that allowed the uh, severe politicization of whether to wear a mask, whether to get vaccinated, et cetera, are in deep trouble. And we lead the world in being in deep trouble over this. I mean, it's a, a clear message, I think, for the future about why you really don't want politics to combine with that. And the, the ways in which, again, tribal identity has been confounded with this, that people see themselves as part of a particular tribe and it's like a shortcut for, so what do I believe? Well, this is what my people believe, this is what I'm gonna believe. And then we've got social media feeding that, um, media in general, and that, 
that becomes increasingly reified in terms of how people think that their politics align with their views towards science and towards scientific recommendations for their own well-being. I mean, I don't think when we started writing this book, we ever would have imagined how deadly this could become, that science denial would be deadly to so many people, that they can be on ventilators in their last breath saying, but it was a hoax. I also think that um, science is different from religion and politics. So I would say that religion and politics are constructions, human constructions of a belief system or an approach or understanding to the world. And that's different from science because science is flawed, of course not perfect, but the goal of science is to use evidence to better understand the world. And so everything we believe today has the possibility of changing tomorrow based on new evidence. That's really not how religion or politics work. So it, it, it isn't the same kind of system, one driven by uh, evidence, others driven by different values. And those values may shift over time a bit, but the values are based in a, a belief system, not necessarily in evidence for something like, like politics or religion. So they're very different systems. And that's why we feel like they can be and should be treated differently. And they ask and answer different questions as far as we're concerned. Yeah, and, and that's definitely true. But something that comes up in the book is that certain scientific conclusions are more or less politically expedient to people. And you, and you give all sorts of examples of this uh, when, when people, when you have Republic, you know, different political uh, leanings uh, assessing graphs about climate change. Um, and then you can like relabel the graphs and get a different, different reading from the same person. Um, you know, but, but for example, like other examples are, are, are gun control, um, because, you know, science does have something to say about uh, gun deaths in America, for example, you know, and that's might be very uncomfortable for someone who's, a, you know, has certain political views. Um, it would seem to me that, you know, science has something to say about uh, racial health outcomes in America. You know, science has something to say about uh, institutional racism and, and, and yeah. you know, the racial wealth gap and things like that. And, and obviously climate change is the big one, which we've mentioned a few times. Um, and all these things, you know, have a very strong political valence. So yeah, I guess it, it sort of maybe builds on things that we've been talking about, like things of identity, something we've been keeping yeah. coming back into, but also undermining the the scientific community. I think also has has a political valence to it. Does well, I think it? people like to be right. We came, we were talking about this before, but people like to be right, and so it is difficult to admit that you were wrong. So if you were a vaccine skeptic and you lived in the Ozarks and you decided you are going to go get the vaccine, it turns out some of those folks went to get the vaccine in disguise because they didn't want their friends and neighbors to see that they had changed their mind and they didn't want to be kicked out of their social group. So it's part of um, our personalities and the way we're constructed that we don't really like to be wrong. We do like to be I think, right. I think the other thing is that uh, there are reasons how about why this gets reinforced in the current environment. So there's a story in this morning's paper about a woman who died yesterday, leaving five children behind, four of them still at home and the husband's already gone died of COVID and was this ad, adamant anti-vaxxer who had published 
on TikTok voluminously about why she was anti-vax. But somebody went back and looked at her feed all the way back from the beginning of COVID. And in March of 2020, she was sensible and following the science and worried about it and wearing a mask and whatever. And then they watched what happened as she got drawn into Facebook groups. And so these Facebook groups led her to a different belief set. People started liking her and following her. Suddenly she had some power. She had people who cared about what she thought. She got on Instagram and TikTok. She posted videos of her rage against the country for thinking they could mandate this. And it's a classic case study of the kind of thing that you were talking about. I mean, here we've got somebody just going off the deep end and all the way to the end, just denying this and dying from it. I mean, her last video was posted with her on a ventilator. I mean, this is, this is just a tragedy. So I think one of the things we do in the book is we talk about what we can do about this. This is the second part of our book of really trying to say, what is it that individuals can do, that policymakers can do, that educators can do, et cetera. But we also care about what big tech can do. We're not gonna all solve this one person at a time on our own in conversation with one other person. We really need to think about how this has been fed. And I think the Facebook hearings are very timely right now for really looking at how does hate get spread? How do bad ideas get spread? How do people get caught up in communities that feed such falsehoods and lead to death? Yeah. Yeah, we're all stuck in our social media bubbles. And as we're seeing with all this information coming out with the Facebook papers is that uh, people don't really fall down rabbit holes, they're pulled down rabbit holes, just as this woman that Barbara described was. And that is so unfortunate. And that's why, you know, you can't just blame individuals. And um, I think it's horrible that people take some sort of Schwanenfugel, if that's what it's called, about anti-vaxxers who die. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't want anybody dying. We don't want anyone dying yeah. of COVID. We want everyone to get vaccinated and everyone to stay safe. But I think the reason people do that is they're so desperate to want to have their belief system confirmed that they were right. And that's, again, not being open not being empathetic. Yeah, 100%. And and that's part of why, like you said, the Herman Cain Award subreddit is, uh, is tricky moral ground, but a lot of it is actually yeah. very, very sad, you know, for, for reasons that are you know, obvious. They're just tragic, tragic stories of, of death and orphans, and it's just horrendous to read. Um, you guys, these, these responses were like really, I think, helpful and really clarifying and really great, as is the book, of course. Um, and, and, you know, just like it reminds me of, you know, the fact that just now I read just today, I think this morning about how, you know, Facebook prioritized anger reacts over like reacts, yep. you know, and, yep. and the way that, you know, anger, um, again, sort of motivates, pulls us into these, into these rabbit holes and into these bubbles. I think that's, that's totally correct. Um, and we, we talked about the, you know, the political valence of some of these issues and, and, the, and the, the social uh, significance of belief. Um, I, I want to give one last one last motivation. I think I have I, I, I've come up with for thinking about science denial and just and just bounce it off you and, and you guys can you know accept or reject or ignore or whatever. Um, having had a lot of these conversations, um, one one of the shocking things that I learned over the last four years, uh, not well, I guess more than four years, but over Trumpism, over the over our era of Trumpism in America. One of the things that I learned that before this, I would never have believed to be true. I, I wouldn't have fathomed this being possible. And I think most people, I think most people in the audience um, will, will not even think this is possible. It, I believe there's a surprisingly large number of 
Americans who don't believe in the values of liberalism, which is to say democracy, and which is to say science, and which is to say freedoms of freedom of press. And again, it's something which I, I never would have thought possible, because of course, it's so obvious. I grew up in a, in a milieu where, of course, we want freedom, of yeah. course, we want democracy, of course, we want freedom of press, freedom of religion, all these things. But it seems to me that there are a surprisingly large number of people that, that are opposed to this. And insofar as that's true, um, science, which is like this symbol of meritocracy, the symbol of elitism, the symbol of, you know, you, you, you study hard and, 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 you, and, and the best rise to the top. Um, becomes becomes suspect and becomes problematic because in, in, a, in a liberal society, there are winners and losers. In a liberal society, the, the most educated and the most, you know, um, whatever, a certain type of class of people rise to the top. And if you're not on the top, if you're on the bottom and you want to overthrow that, there's a real deep suspicion of the scientific project. Does that, does that make sense to you? It does. I do think if you look historically, authoritarianism has always had an appeal. It's not recent. It's not in the last four years. Um, you can look back historically. Um, and I think, you know, people want certain answers. They want things to be neat and clean and they want absolute answers, which of course, um, if you are a true scientists, we know that the world is much more fuzzy than that. So people want certain answers and seek certain answers. And I think authoritarian kinds of approaches give those kinds of certain answers. And it is something that people have always been drawn to, not just in the last um, four years, certainly. You know, science can be democratizing in the sense that anyone in theory can become a scientist. Of course, you need access to education. We don't have equal access, but in theory, people and anyone could become a scientist. And in practice, anyone can think like a scientist. So I don't really fully understand the uh, suspicion of elitism, but it's always been the case that people have been suspect of people who are more highly educated. And I'm not sure what that's about, but I imagine it's an insecurity and a concern that maybe um, the educated are going to upend their their belief system and their way of life. Yeah, and I think you, you saw echoes of this in, in Nazi Germany um, when when you know, the, the the Nazi Party had to you know replace all the academics um, because because I think reality is bad for authoritarians. I think you know understanding the threat of climate change um, is is not helpful. You know, understanding the threats of of, of gun violence, racial inequality are not helpful for authoritarians. And so I think anyway, that's that's sort of um, a theory that I've been sort of uh, unfortunately uh, thinking about. Uh, well, what we've seen recently in the past in the last four years was don't believe your eyes, believe what I am saying. And right. science is about believing evidence and believing what's before your eyes, not believing what one leader says. Exactly, true. exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's exactly what the point that I, that I was sort of thinking about. Yeah, uh, this has been so wonderful. Um, we're we're getting, I guess, towards the end here. Um, how do we change people's minds? How do we educate and on, on the level of the classroom or the level of museums or on the level of interpersonal, you know, family member to family member? What, what do we do with science deniers in our lives? 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Ami, because we have a lot of suggestions in the book for how to uh, think more scientifically yourself as an individual, how to promote a scientific attitude in, in students if you're an educator, uh, how to communicate better about science if you're a scientist yourself or a science communicator, and also what can you do as a policymaker to embrace science and make better policy because of it. So our book is filled with those examples, particularly our last chapter addresses those in depth. I would say for individuals, um, adopt a scientific attitude, be open to evidence and um, be careful uh, when you read stories on the internet. Uh, you need to be thoughtful about those sources and don't just uh, click and share without investigating those sources. Educators can do a lot to educate K through 12 and higher education students about how to source scientific information how to think scientifically. And um, you want to talk, Barbara, about scientists, science communicators, and policymakers and what they can do? Actually, what I want to jump in and say is a little bit more about talking to other people, because I think this is what people are most interested in. How do I have that conversation with someone I really care about who I think is holding beliefs about science that are counterproductive? They're not getting vaccinated. Um, they don't accept climate change, whatever that might be. And I think we, we want people to feel confident having those conversations. And what we encourage is to have a conversation that is based on good listening, on curiosity, compassion, respect, all of those things. We know that you don't change somebody's mind by attacking them, laughing at them, belittling them, or not really listening to them. That's not going to happen. But finding a way to connect with someone else and to connect around common values. And I'll just give you an example of having given a, a public talk on science denial. There was a man who asked if he could meet with me for coffee the following week to talk about why he was a science denier. He said, I'm basically that, that person you've described in there. And he had a lot of what we would consider highly erroneous beliefs about science, and he did not accept climate change. And it was a, you know, a tough conversation, but I, I really worked to try to hear him, to understand why he thought what he thought and where that was coming from. But I also used the message about find common values. So every one of us has some way we can connect with another person. And in this case, it was realizing he, that we were both grandparents and saying, and I said, you know, we're both grandparents, blah, blah, blah. I worry about what the fate of the planet is gonna be for my, my grandchildren. Does that concern you? And he softened and melted and talked about, yes, it really did worry him. And he did think that things were getting problematic. And it was really more about the economic solutions that he was concerned. Well, now we were on a different ground. It wasn't just, I don't believe any of that's happening. He had been really uncomfortable about it also, but now he was willing to talk a little bit further. And I think with every person we talk to, we can find out what is it that we have in common? Where can we begin as a place of trust, compassion, curiosity, good listening, respect? Yeah, that, that's such a breath of fresh air, fresh air. And that's why your book was, you know, also a, a breath of fresh air, um, because I feel like that's that's a perspective that's so often missing from this from this discourse. And and of course, that's that's absolutely correct. Um, and yeah, these, these, you know, our tendency to dismiss or uh, show disdain um, for people to be judgmental of people has has a backfire effect. And it's, it's documented that there's yeah. evidence around it. Um, it's, yeah. it's not helpful. Nothing, nothing will reinforce your belief 
uh, by feeling judged by people who disagree with you. You know, and, yeah. and um, as Barbara said, no one's ever come over to your point of view right after you told them they were stupid. That's just never <laughs> happened. So um, we don't recommend doing that. And often it isn't the case that it's coming from a place of ignorance. Often it isn't a case that it's ignorance. It's having a legitimate question or even a question we might not feel is legitimate, but is legitimate to them having an emotional concern. Um, my niece was concerned about vaccination because a Facebook friend had said that it causes infertility. That's a legitimate concern. It's not a legitimate scientific point, but obviously it's a legitimate concern. She got that resolved by talking to her doctor. She got vaccinated. So, you know, it's really about finding out what people really think and listening to them. They often will change their mind if you are respectful of their point of view. Not always, but we can't, we can't just, we have to look at the movable middle those people in the middle who can change and not just in the extremes. And you can steer people towards other authorities that they trust. Who is it that they might listen to? So I had a relative who wasn't gonna get vaccinated because he thought he had too many underlying conditions that argued against getting vaccinated. He thought it would be dangerous for him. And he really was not listening to what I had read about this well, but I said, why don't you just call your doctor and see what your doctor says. Well, the doctor assured him that he was exactly the person who should get vaccinated quickly because of those underlying conditions and he went and did it. So figuring out who else does someone trust, who do they view as an expert authority and really being able to steer them there if you're not successful is a helpful way to go. Yeah, and I'll just, you know, sort of maybe echo back some of these things, but, you know, from my own experience, um, you know, if, if, if you're patient, you, you sort of build friendships or connections, maybe not friendships, but, but a sort of a, at least a conversation, a dialogue. Um, what you could do is you have the power to hold up a mirror to someone's beliefs, which they don't often have. Um, and, and just by asking mm-hmm. honest, respectful questions, you could draw out, um, you know, really the consequences of, the, of their beliefs. And um, sometimes that might not go anywhere, but often it can give them a fresh perspective on, on, on where they actually stand and, and, and see things from, from a, a different perspective. Um, yeah. and, and you can, you can, I think mirror empathy, you know, if, if you, if you offer someone patience and you offer someone empathy, um, they'll be inclined to, to give that to you and, and they'll be inclined to, to hear your perspective and try on your perspective, yeah. you know, and see how they like it. Um, and of course, obviously, you know, people, people need time because, you know, these, these beliefs are so intertwined, uh, with our identity and our relationships. Um, and, and I'm not going to do the direct quote now, maybe I'll edit it in afterwards or something, but there's a, there's a beautiful GK Chesterton quote, which I think about a lot in, the, in these contexts. So, you know, GK Chesterton is like this, uh, Christian, uh, apologist, uh, I don't remember exactly how long ago he lived, uh, fairly recently last hundred years. Um, and, uh, he, he, he talks about madness, like people who have cons- basically conspiracy theories, you know, he, he was talking about people think they're Jesus or whatever, or they think they think it's conspiracy theories, basically. And he writes very beautifully how it's not irrationality, but it's like an excess of rationality. It's like a logical loop. You know, they have an answer for everything. And he says, when you're talking to these people um, who have these notions, you know, think, show them how small their world is. You know, it's it, the idea that, you know, our, our earth is flat and that it's a global conspiracy is, is, a very, is a very constricted kind of world, you know, relative to a world where, we're, you know, we're, we're human beings, you know, and we're each doing the best yeah. we can and messing up. And, you know, so I, I think about that as well, um, just sort of like not seeing as a lack of, uh, a, pri- a lack of rationality, yeah. but uh, but it was saying too constricted uh, to be reasonable. That's 
That's a really good description. I, I am thinking about what you're describing as a closed loop of rationality. No new information gets in. No new evidence rattles it. And from everything I've read about Flat Earth Society and their meetings, that's what happens is that there's, there's no, um, no allowance for anything that might shake that worldview. It's so rigid in that way. And that's, I think that's what you're talking about. Thank you. But as you mentioned earlier, people who are science acceptors can be awfully rigid too. We heard a great example yesterday from someone we were speaking with who was a science teacher. And she had a student who was a very devout Christian come to her class in evolution and put a Bible on his desk every day. And then in his tests and essays, he would always quote scripture. And what she said is, she let him do that and she just graded him on the science and at the end of the semester he did well in the class and eventually interestingly enough became a science teacher and reached out to her and said you know because you let me be who i was because you didn't confront the bible on my desk you just accepted it i was able to listen to what you had to say and he became a science teacher so i think that's a great story to illustrate that we must be open on both sides yeah this has been so wonderful. Dr. Sinatra, Dr. Hofer, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you wanna leave us with? Anything you want people to know about uh, where to find you or anything? Um, I'll link the book down below, but any any final words uh, before, before we go? Well, you can find us both on our university web pages and you can find the book um, on Oxford University Press's website on Amazon. It's also an audio book on Amazon, it's on Kindle. And we would love it if you asked your local bookstore to get it for you. 